Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2. This morning, Mark chapter 2. I can't think of a more appropriate song to sing before the preaching of the word than show us Christ. That is what I hope to do in the next 40 minutes or so, is to show you Christ. Nothing else. This morning I want to begin by reading Mark 2, verses 1 to 12. The title of the message this morning is Jesus, the Merciful Judge, Part 2. I want to begin by reading God's inspired words, starting in Mark 2, verse 1. Mark the Evangelist wrote, When he had come back to Capernaum several days afterward, it was heard that he was at home, and many were gathered together, so that there was no longer room, not even near the door. And he was speaking the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic, carried by four men. Being unable to get to him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had dug an opening, they let down the pallet on which the paralytic was lying. And Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. But some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoned in their hearts, Why does this man speak that way? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus, aware in his spirit that they were reasoning this way within themselves, said to them, Why are you reasoning about these things in your own hearts? Which is easier? To say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, pick up your pallet, and walk. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up, pick up your pallet, and go home. And he got up and immediately picked up the pallet and went out in the sight of everyone, And that they were all amazed and were glorifying God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. It's been about seven weeks since we've been in Mark, so it's appropriate for me to get us all caught back up to speed. With the account I just read, Jesus enters into a new phase in his Galilean ministry. After his baptism... And after having spent 40 days in the wilderness, being tempted by Satan, Mark 1.14 tells us Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God. As you may remember, his preaching had an immediate and profound impact on everybody who could hear. Remember why? Because he taught with authority. Think about that for a second. Jesus was not only the kind of preacher that no one had ever heard before. He was also a healer like no one had ever seen before. Mark one thirty four tells us that he healed many who were ill with various diseases and cast out many demons. And so the whole city of Capernaum sought out Jesus and all of those who were physically afflicted, afflicted, wanted to be healed by Jesus. 
He was so popular in Capernaum due to his miracle working, he had to literally leave town just to escape the fanfare. But Jesus' attempt to escape was quickly thwarted by a man with leprosy. After graciously healing the man, Jesus' popularity had grown to the point where he decided to stay out in the unpopulated areas. They were coming to him from everywhere. Mark 1.45 This is where we pick up in John Mark's narrative in his gospel account. Keep in mind the main purpose or the main theme of this book as we go. Mark's intent was not to simply have the reader know what Jesus did. Okay? So if, if all you think when you walk out is that Jesus healed somebody, if that's what you walk away with, I have failed you. That is not the main point of the message. That is not the main point that Mark wants you to grasp. He is not simply interested in the historicity of Jesus. It doesn't matter if you know what Jesus did in this account. We're not merely looking for an example. Writing to a Gentile audience, which is all of us, I think, Mark intends his readers to fully know who Jesus was in his humble human state. The emphasis here is on the person of Jesus, not his ministry. Jesus was the suffering servant, the divine suffering servant. So understand that Mark emphasizes Jesus' humanity and deity simultaneously. Both are essential. Mark highlights Jesus' human emotions, his human limitations, and other small details that highlight the human side of the Son of God. So far, we've seen that in his humanity, he was very authoritative. His proclamation was authoritative, as was his call to his disciples to drop everything and follow him, which is the message for next week. We've also learned that his teaching was authoritative, as I said already. It astonished everyone, including the demon. We saw that his authority included having authority over the physical world. We also see the compassionate side of Jesus. Again, we're talking about who Jesus was. He was moved with that deep-seated gut-level emotion for the leper and Peter's mother-in-law. In the opening verses of Mark 2, we discover another piece of evidence that Jesus is both man and God. And as I alluded to, we need to fully grasp that the person of Jesus is what's in view here. We need to grasp this the best we can so that we don't emphasize his humanity over his deity or vice versa. If we emphasize one over the other, we are flirting with heresy. And we all know what the consequence of heresy is, don't we? So I say, I say again, don't, don't just be well in tune with, with the service of Jesus. 
be also well in tune with the theology of Jesus. We must read Mark and walk away with having a clear understanding of the hypostatic union of our Master, which is it's just a theological term to describe how the two natures of Jesus, human and divine, are inseparable. One of the greatest mysteries of our faith is that Jesus was somehow fully God and fully man, simultaneously. Both are vital. Both are orthodox. And affirmation of both are necessary in order to be saved from the wrath to come. Today we'll continue our study and see yet another perfect display of the divine authority and physical emotion, human emotion of Jesus. What Mark the Evangelist wants us to focus in on in this section of his revelation is Christ's position as the authoritative, that's where his divine nature comes in, and graciousness. We see his authoritativeness and graciousness of Jesus as the judge. So what's vital for you to remember is that the evidence of Christ's divine nature is not simply found in his power to heal a man. It's confirmed in his authority to grant once and for all forgiveness to sinners. Only he alone can forgive sin. Therefore, since that's true, since that is true, all men must come to him in genuine faith alone or pay the penalty for their own sin. So this morning, Christ alone will be proclaimed. I have no other message. I don't care about any other message. I don't care about current events. I don't care about cute little stories. I don't care about anything else than Christ being proclaimed because you're not going to get it anywhere else. This is where Christ is found. And these words proclaimed to you. So, the second exposition of the text about Jesus' divine authority to remove sins by grace through faith alone has a twofold purpose. The purpose is for the unconverted sinner who hears these words to seek, is to seek forgiveness by grace through faith alone in Christ alone. The same Jesus whom we read about in our text this morning still possesses that authority to forgive sin. And my hope for the converted saint here today is to be reminded and convicted about the justice of Jesus. But also to be encouraged by the mercy of Jesus. Our God is merciful. And he is also just. Those of us who are genuinely saved need a steady diet of both. Just like your body needs a balanced diet, your soul needs a balanced diet. You need to rest in the eternal reality that God has withheld the punishment that you all deserve for your sin. Rest in that. Every morning. 
but so that you do not presume on the grace of God. You need to hear that God is just. And he will by no means let the guilty go unpunished. Even if you are justified positionally, we all still must, must face and stand before God on the Bema seat. So, our text this morning is centered around five distinct characters, as you may remember from the last time, maybe not. Five distinct characters in this short narrative, all of whom play a different and distinct yet intentional and significant role in this account. There is something to learn from each set of characters. And I don't have time this morning to point out every lesson that the Holy Spirit has illuminated to me. So I'm going to trust that the Holy Spirit will also make these words come alive and instruct you and enable you to respond appropriately by seeing this account of Jesus extending forgiveness to the least and undeserving of human society. Seven weeks ago, we learned from the first three sets of characters. First was the searching spectators. Second was the sorrowful, sor- sorrowful sinner in verses 3 and 4. The third character was the sympathetic Savior, verse 5. And now we'll turn our attention to the last two sets of characters in verses 6 to 12. They are the, super, the suspicious scribes, the suspicious scribes in verses 6 to 11, and the surprised spectators in verse 12. We're going to spend the majority of our time this morning talking about the suspicious scribes. So here we go. The fourth set of characters in this narrative we need to learn from are the suspicious scribes. And boy, this is an important one. Brothers and sisters, in these verses, we see an aspect of Jesus' personality that's not very popular in mainstream church. Many pastors who are not committed to a verse-by-verse preaching ministry, would most likely skip verses 6 to 11? Because we see our master contend. He was a contender. He discerns the thoughts of these scribes, and he publicly and boldly confronts their wrong thinking. Verse 6. But some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoned in their hearts. Why does this man speak that way? He is blasphemy. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Those words were not verbally spoken. Those words were thought. Here we see firsthand the very first head-on collision between Jesus and the self-righteous Jewish elite of the day, the scribes. Who from here on out, listen, are Jesus' number one enemy. 
second only to Satan himself. The scribes who were associated with the Pharisees are also referred to as lawyers in Luke 10, verse 25. No implication for lawyers today. They were the professional theologians of the day. They were the Old Testament scholars of the day. The history dates back to the time of Ezra and Nehemiah when the Israelites returned to their homeland after the Babylonian captivity. Jewish tradition asserted that God gave the law to angels, who gave it to Moses and Joshua, who gave it to the elders, who gave it to the prophets, who gave it to the scribes in order to lead and teach the synagogues. You see the the telephone game there? That's how we get so many weird traditions in the Jewish religion. So they were responsible, these scribes, they were responsible to copy, not only teach, but to copy and preserve the scriptures as well as interpret them. And so they fulfilled the primary teaching, preaching role. Collectively, as we see here, they openly oppose Jesus as soon as he gains the momentum. As we'll see interlaced, and the rest of the gospel account of Mark, the scribes and Pharisees become Jesus' most boisterous, boisterous hecklers and outspoken accusers. Now, I'm not the first person to say this. What, what I'm going to say next, Jesus was no wimp. Jesus was no sissy. And in the words of Phil Johnson, he was no figure skater. <laughs> meaning that he didn't dance around hard things. When he was confronted, not simply with, 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 with poor, helpless, needy sinners, he dealt with them accordingly. But when he was confronted by hard-hearted, angry, mean, ill-motived men, he adjusted his style accordingly. He was no coward. He was no pushover. And I think it's clear to say, as we read on, that Jesus was not very patient with them. He wasn't very gentle with them. He publicly and abruptly goes on the offense and masterfully exposes their error out in the open air. That's how Jesus dealt with the scribes and Pharisees. But don't take my word for it. (laughs) Before I point you back to verses 8 to 11, I want to briefly mention that the scribes were not entirely wrong here. Right? That's the danger of of, of false teachers. That's the danger of heresy, is that there's always some grain of truth, right? Right? And that's enough to deceive people. So, so these Pharisees, or, or these scribes rather, th- their theology was right in the sense that they believed only God could grant full forgiveness of sin. That's true. We agree with that, amen? Amen. Thank you, John. That premise was correct. Since every sin is an act of cosmic treason against our Creator, only Yahweh the Supreme Judge can grant eternal pardon. 
So as we see, the scribes, they understood very well the biblical doctrine of sin and righteousness. Which is why, in their view, Jesus was a blasphemer. To the Jew, the sin of blasphemy was the most horrendous crime you could commit. Again, this is why I love expository preaching. Because I am, I am bound to take us back to the first, first century Rome. To, to, to commit blasphemy, it was serious. To us in our culture, it's so flippant. Even Christians, unintentionally, use God's name in vain all the time. But back then, it was bad juju. You just didn't do it. They believed it was so serious that they, they brutally, brutally enforced three levels of punishment for blasphemy. First, a person was charged with blasphemy if they spoke evil of the law of God. Stephen in Acts 6 and Paul in Acts 21 were wrongly accused of doing this. Secondly, more seriously, this uh, uh, blasphemy occurred when a person spoke evil of God directly. So you don't speak ill of the law of God, and you don't speak ill of God's character. Cursed in the name of the Lord, for example, which is so prevalent in our society, right? Was a crime, listen, I'm not making this up, punishable by death. Capital punishment was carried out in compliance to Leviticus 24:17, which reads, "Moreover," and I'm quoting Leviticus 24:17. "Moreover, the one who blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All of the congregation shall stone him. The alien." as well as the native, when he blasphemes the name, shall be put to death. When I read that, before I pasted it into my manuscript, I just had to sit there for a minute and, and just meditate on that and think how far have we veered from that level of respect and fear for the name of God. Something to think about. Now the third level, the third form of blasphemy was even more heinous than the other two. The third kind of blasphemy took place when a human being claimed to possess divine authority and equality with God. For a, mere, for, a more man, for, a, for a mere mortal man to act as if he were God was the most egregious offense of all. It was this form of blasphemy that the scribes were accusing Jesus of. Eventually, they would use the same accusations to justify his murder. So with that in mind... Let's see 
how Jesus responds to this crazy charge. He's a blasphemer. Verse 8. Immediately, Jesus, aware in his spirit that they were reasoning that way within themselves, said to them, Why are you reasoning about these things in your hearts? Which is easier? To say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and pick up your pallet and walk. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up, pick up your pallet, and go home. Now notice what is embedded here. It's a secondary line of evidence that Jesus is divine. Verse 8 indicates that he is omniscient. Omniscient simply meaning all-knowing. Jesus is omniscient. John 2.25 says it this way. For he, speaking of Jesus himself, knew what was in man. Now, put yourself in the shoes of the scribes. Wouldn't that be a little freaky? You know, have you ever thought, like, you know, I'm really glad that nobody has the ability to read my mind. Right? That would be embarrassing. And now, now we've all thought, we all, we've all thought crazy vile things before. Right? All of us. All of us. So to be in the presence of Jesus, whew, that would be hard, wouldn't it, to know that he could know what you're thinking? So Mark wants you to know very well who these poor scribes are getting themselves involved with. These scribes have no clue who they're messing with, do they? But they're about to find out. Jesus is not just some man going around blaspheming. He's the God-man who has authority to forgive sins and the power to heal the paralytic. He first demonstrates this by unmasking their thoughts, and then he responds to their questions with a question. Does that ever annoy you guys sometimes? Like you ask a question or something, and they respond with a question? That's how Jesus did stuff. That, 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 that's how he, he, he went on the offense. And so he puts them on the defense by saying, which is easier to say? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or get up, pick up your mallet, and walk? Now, on the surface, you read this, especially out of its context, right? And you wonder, what does Jesus mean here? I mean, doesn't that seem like an odd question to ask? A bunch of well-educated Jewish elites? Well, of course it's easier to say something instead of performing a miracle. Anyone can say, your sins are forgiven. But only one could authenticate that statement with a miracle. Any Tom, Dick, or Harry can easily pronounce someone forgiven. Because there's no existing empirical evidence that forgiveness has occurred. But it would be extremely difficult to back up such a statement or or a, a pronouncement with verifiable and experiential proof. 
Can a mere man provide such evidence that eternal pardon has occurred? Can they? No. But that's precisely what Jesus does. Despite their ill motive for the scri- of the scribes, he allowed them to have a front row seat to the undeniable demonstration and verification of his authority to forgive sin. Now, verse 10, okay? Make sure you tune in here. Because verse 10 is central to this narrative. But so that you may know. So that you may know. Do you see that? Do you see why Jesus healed this man? I want you to draw your attention to those two little words. So that is a translation of a Greek conjunction that's there to indicate the purpose for which the thing is done. It can be translated to that end. So listen, it wasn't out of the kindness of Jesus' heart. It wasn't because Jesus wanted to demonstrate his concern for the sinner's physical well-being. The reason he healed the paralytic was to solely prove to the watching world that he was not a blasphemer. And if he was not a blasphemer, then he was God as he claimed. And then if he is God, then brothers and sisters, he has the authority to forgive sins. That's why he healed the man. So what can we learn from these suspicious scribes? Well, again, as I said in the beginning, I'll trust the Holy Spirit will enable you to make appropriate application. But I want to highlight at least one reason or one lesson that we can learn from these scribes. It's this. Make certain that your view of Jesus is the right one. Make certain that your view of Jesus is not the wrong one like the scribes had. Don't be ignorant and hard-hearted when it comes to getting the full picture of who Jesus is. Because if you believe in the wrong Jesus, then what? Then you have a worthless Savior. The scribes, they rejected this person of Christ from the outset. And their error was exposed. Today, even though we have the New Testament, many professing Christians live life with the viewpoint that Jesus is not both God and man. Or that he isn't both just and merciful. You guys get my drift, right? A lot of people go through life solely knowing one side of Jesus. 
They grew through life only knowing Jesus as a humble human servant. And they miss the point of why Jesus healed the people he healed. It was not to give a good example. It was not to simply show that he was a loving God. He is. It was to demonstrate that he brought a message from the King of Kings. And that message was to repent and believe the gospel. Many Christians go through life not having the full picture of Jesus. And so for the sake of your own soul, may I implore you to get to know the Jesus of the Bible. Don't get to know the mainstream Jesus. Don't get to know the Jesus, even on Christian radio. Don't get to know the Jesus of contemporary Christian music. And don't get to know the Jesus of our culture. They will deceive you. And they will lead you astray. Just like these scribes led so many people astray. The fifth and final set of characters that we need to learn from in this account of the Lord's authority to forgive sin are the surprised spectators in verse 12. And he got up and immediately picked up the mallet, the pallet, and went out in sight of everyone, so that they were all amazed and were glorifying God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. What do you notice at the beginning of verse 12? Mark's favorite adverb. Immediately. Immediately. It's time, this time it's employed here in this context to highlight the reality that this paralytic who was once paralyzed a split second ago experienced a partial recovery. He felt a little bit better. No, he experienced a complete and immediate recovery. As we've seen before, There was no recuperation period, nor was there any lingering effects at all of his former condition. The moment the words left Jesus' mouth, the man regained feeling and function and full strength in every part of his body. He did not need months of physical therapy to relearn how to stand and walk. Instead, he stood straight up, picked up his stretcher, and went out. Now, these observations are significant because this is how you must compare supposed or reported instances of miraculous healing. If the healing that you hear about from your neighbor's friend's sister that says, I know somebody in Africa or somewhere else that got miraculously healed. If it wasn't immediate, if it wasn't undeniable, if it wasn't complete, it was no miraculous healing. 
So as it would for you and I, it caused the spectators to be amazed. And the text also says that they were glorifying God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. The word rendered amazed in the original means to stand out or to stand away from, to be removed out of place. So, in other words, in this context, they were out of their minds. They were completely besides themselves. And to put it another way, they were literally losing their minds. It's, it's not like something that we see out of the ordinary. Like the Chicago Bears winning a football game, right? If that happens, we get surprised. And we are astonished. And then we get over it. And move on. These folks were literally beside themselves. They were mentally removed. They just witnessed a miracle. But sadly, though they were awestruck, and even though they were praising God, their faith was superficial. Fake. Even after Jesus provided the empirical evidence that he was God in the flesh, the people still didn't know who he truly was. You say, Hyman, where do you get that? Well, I get it from Matthew 9, verse 8. Matthew 9, verse 8 records the reaction with these words. Matthew says, But when the crowd saw this, they were awestruck, glorified God, listen, who had given such authority to men. To men. So they responded with counterfeit faith. Which they had to because the physical healing was too awesome to deny. But after witnessing the authentication of Jesus' authority to forgive sin, they should have placed their trust in him immediately. But they, they praised God for giving this ability to a man. They missed, they missed the boat, didn't they? So, friends, the response that the surprised spectators had Well, let me say the response that they should have had to this narrative is the same exact response that you should have right now. The words, your sins are forgiven, which were spoke to the paralytic 2,000 years ago, are the same words he still speaks to all who come to him in genuine faith alone. But do you see the condition? In order to hear, your sins are forgiven, you need to have faith in Christ. Faith alone. Not faith in his historicity. Not faith that he was a miracle worker. But faith that he is both God and man. And that his atonement was sufficient. His atonement on the cross, which purchased our redemption, 
which allowed the just God of the universe to grant us a pardon, can only be applied through faith. Faith alone. And so we all must flee to Christ, to Jesus, who was the merciful judge, for forgiveness of sins. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the forgiveness of sins that we know is available through the word. Thank you, Lord, that these words spoken to the paralytic rings true. I pray, I pray for those who are here today who need to be forgiven to respond in true faith and believe and be born again. I pray for those who are saved, who are justified here, to be humbled, to become thankful, to live a life in such a way that glorifies you because you have bought us. You have forgiven us by grace. And I pray, Lord, that this truth that we've heard before will never grow cold to us. I pray that we will not become a lukewarm church that's neither hot nor cold because we know how you think of those kind of churches. May we be a people zealous and on fire for the gospel and for the salvation of sinners. May we be a church having this knowledge of true forgiveness granted to us by Christ. May we use the time we have here on earth to be disciple makers. To be people known as truth speakers. Thank you, Lord, for allowing us to hear these words, understand them. In Jesus' name, amen.